Is your business two steps ahead or always one behind? If the latter, chances are you lack data and insights to confirm your instincts. Here's the deal. Leaders are trapped in a world where data and insights are still a luxury rather than a commodity. While you might have strong intuitions about your business, my guess is you're hampered by legacy institutions and capabilities that provide only surface-level data and insights that do very little to validate your assumptions. Join me on a journey with some of the world's most notable minds who will share with you their secrets in capturing and making data-driven decisions that power their business. I'm Maury Blackman, and this is Great Minds Think Data. Welcome to today's episode of Great Minds Think Data. Last week, Premise organized polling centered around the upcoming elections and, most importantly, theoretical matchups for the 2024 presidential election. The intent is to collect data tracking presidential candidates' polling numbers and a range of topics that are potentially important for election results. My guest today, who helped create the surveys for the Premise poll, is Lanny Davis. Lanny became a household name in the late 1990s as special counsel to President Bill Clinton during the Monica Lewinsky scandal and will help us interpret the polling data and provide insights about today's political climate. Welcome, Lanny. Hello, Maury. Looking forward to this. It's great to have a stalwart, you know, kind of almost, I would say, in today's world, we would consider you a grandfather of the Democratic Party. So, welcome. And a grandfather of six great-grandchildren. Well, good for you. That's fantastic. You know, the first time... I was introduced to Lanny Davis. It was it was back in the mid '90s, and it was primetime TV in the middle of the day during the week. And you were defending your old boss, President Clinton. You were doing an amazing job deflecting, defending, um, postulating different questions. And I thought to myself, "Self, if I ever get in trouble, this is my guy." And I still feel that way, you know, thirty or forty years later. Well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. My job at the White House when I got started before the Lewinsky matter, uh, which actually occurred right after I left and I was a volunteer doing television when you were watching me, was to try to help President Clinton get his facts out subject to a lot of difficult press coverage. So every president complains about the press corps. But that was my job. And one of my memories about that job is when I had a bad story breaking about campaign finance issues, I would run over to the West Wing to try to get an answer to the questions of the day. And I began to notice a pattern as I ran down the hallway of the West Wing that doors were slowly closing as I was approaching. And somebody said to me, that's because, Lana, you're like a walking infection. (laughs) Well, so, you know, my question to you is related to bad news. People always criticize me as a CEO. They say, well, or you just don't like to hear bad news. And you know what? They're right. I really don't. Because I think one of the things that people don't realize is when you're in the chair, people are just constantly bombarding you with bad news. So whenever somebody comes in, I think, oh, my God, I hope there's good news. So obviously, when you show up in in the boss's office, in the president's office, he probably knows the minute Davis shows up is not good news. How did he take it? Sometimes it was, oh, blankety blank, Lanny's here. (laughs) (laughs) President Clinton wanted to hear the bad news. He supported my philosophy counterintuitively. If I had a bad story, I wanted to put it out myself call a reporter, leak it, do whatever I could to get in front of it before the Republicans had a chance to do the first attack and I'm playing defense. Hard advice to follow, but I found in the corporate as well as the political world, you can't delete a bad fact. You can surround it by two good facts, 
but better to do it yourself. And maybe I think you might say shape the story. At least uh, I don't use the word spin, but I always uh, say there's good spin and bad spin. Good spin is taking facts and having a reasonable interpretation. If they're bad facts, own up right away. Own up, fix it, and that's what you do with bad facts. But you don't hold them back because then somebody else is going to write the bad story. So I always volunteered both bad facts and good facts to reporters. And sometimes people in the White House would say, whose side are you on anyway? But now my clients understand if you want to get past bad news and turn to a good message, put out your own facts, good and bad. Well, this is a great segue into what it is that we want to talk about today is the first premise presidential poll. The results are in. You reviewed them prior and you expressed to me Wow, I am blown away. I am shocked by the results. Not only shocked, but when this headline, probably since the poll has already been completed, we expect this to be released as we're speaking today in this podcast. I would have expected that given all that we now know about Donald Trump's complicity and the insurrection and the lie about not accepting the results of the 2020 election, that Joe Biden, with all his problems, would be defeating Donald Trump. Yet this poll shows a dead heat, and I was shocked by that. On the other hand, given Joe Biden's problems with the economy, with inflation, and with so many other things that are hurting his job approval rating, you would think that even Donald Trump would be ahead of Joe Biden. He is not. It's 50-50. That's a shocking headline. I guess as we looked at the 2020 election, it was, it was pretty even then, too, as well. And what strikes me about that election is the fact that it was really Trump lost. That's my opinion, of course. The country was at a moment where, hey, listen, we're tired of all the tweeting. We're tired of all the bullying. We're tired about you know, calling people names. You know, we just want things to go back to normal. So do you think the results of this poll, it's, people are still in that same mindset. They don't care about the economy. They don't care about inflation. They just want their lives to be normal. And they feel like with Trump in office, it's going back to the craziness. With Biden in office, he may not be polling that well on his competency. The, he may not be polling that well on his likability and a whole host of other things. But at the same time, it's kind of, which of the bad am I going to take? Well, the truth is that they share a certain common problem. The Democrats in our polling sample, and I am, full disclosure, a great fan and supporter of Joe Biden for many, many years have known him. Democrats overwhelmingly, over 60%, are saying to Joe Biden, we don't want you to run again. And this is the first poll that I've seen that's that clear among Democrats saying to President Biden, we love you, we admire you, but we don't want you to run again. On the other hand, Donald Trump, despite all of his problems, which I certainly believe are serious in his involvement in the 1-6 mob and insurrection activity owns, according to our poll, the Republican Party. He crushes Ron DeSantis of Florida, the governor of Florida, in a Republican primary. Mike Pence, the former vice president, he crushes in a primary. He owns the Republican Party. So while Joe Biden doesn't seem to own the Democratic Party anymore, Donald Trump owns the Republican Party. How that sorts out is a 50-50 split in the polling question that we asked about the 2024 election. But the contrast between those two is the likelihood that Donald Trump is the nominee if he does declare for president. Yeah, I think the other thing that 
I was fascinated by was when you look at the results of the polling of Pence and DeSantis versus Biden, it showed that they ran better. I mean, on the margins, of course, they ran better against Biden than Trump. What do you attribute that to? For sure, Joe Biden's uh, job approval rating suffering from my political argument is something that you can't blame him for. He's not responsible for the gas price hikes that are really hurting him more than anything else. But he's there and the buck stops here. So DeSantis and Pence, for whatever reason, are not Donald Trump. And you might have other well-known Republicans who would be running close to Biden or ahead of Biden because their name is not Donald Trump. Going back to your earlier point about what the 2020 election was really about and put aside the mythology of the conspiracy theorists about a stolen election or what we would say on the Democratic side is the big lie. Biden won by a very large margin. It wasn't even close in popular votes, as you know, nine million votes. But Now that Biden is in such bad shape, you would think that Trump would be closer to beating him. And the best thing we have going for us as Democrats is if Donald Trump runs again. I hear a lot about this in the political world, talking about the popular vote. And there's a number of your Democratic colleagues who make reference to it quite a bit. But from my standpoint, on the other side, the founders had this vision for the country and they were worried that the big states would tyrannize the smaller ones. So therefore, the Senate formation, Electoral College. In your thinking, does popular vote matter? It matters when you're governing. If you've won by a large margin, you have a popular mandate. But the Constitution is our rule of law. And the founders compromised on this between big states and small states. We might not have ever had a Constitution without that compromise. And so we Democrats uh, live by it or get injured by it. When we love the electoral vote margins of Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, we love the Electoral College. Now it seems to be turning, and we've got to do better. As we've discovered in the premise poll, if you look at the results of the Biden versus Trump contest or any other contest, you're looking at two countries. The results on the East Coast and the West Coast and in patches of the Middle West are the only places where Democrats are winning. But those are enough electoral votes to capture the presidency. So we love the electoral college system saying it that way. The rest of the country is all red, but they're smaller states with smaller numbers of electoral college votes. So I'm not in favor of changing the Constitution because I don't know what will come out better. But I do know that the Democrats cannot run a national campaign by getting on a plane in New York and waiting five hours to campaign in the next state. We've got to find a way to win back the middle of the country, and that starts with the state of Ohio, and the Senate contest in Ohio is the key contest for us because the Trump candidate, J.D. Vance, who wrote a great book, Hillbilly Elegy, then went very sharply to Trump. If he carries Ohio, that's going to be a very bad sign for Democrats. I want to go back to this Pence and DeSantis versus Biden. I'm putting on my political junkie hat here. I kind of think it's interesting that Pence has seemingly broke away from Trump, whereas DeSantis is more closely aligned to him. I'm going back to this whole business about, I believe that character matters in the electorate. I believe that the American people believe in character and they want to elect a man of character. And Pence and Biden whether you agree with them or disagree with them, they both have character, mean what they say, say what they mean, that type of stuff. How do you feel about that? 
Well, I admire what Mike Pence did in denying the deniers of the election and not going along with the big lie. And I would like to think more people who are Trump voters are leaving him as they realize at the very least that for what we're going to be hearing and which we do not see in the poll results is that he was actively involved in instigating and organizing that violent mob. However, the poll results of the supremacist poll are shocking at how little these 1-6 committee hearings have had as an effect on the electorate. It's still Trump's world controlling the Republican Party, and they're not listening and they're not tuning in. That may be the real subheadline of this podcast and uh, the announcement of your premise poll should be catching the attention of people in Washington. How do you get through to people who are truly believers in the big lie and have not turned on CNN or MSNBC for years, but are in their own ecosystem on other stations? It's a very difficult problem that Democrats face getting through. If we don't get through on the one-six responsibility that I think Donald Trump carries, then it's not easy to reach this Trump base. Well, basically, if you look at the polling from the premise poll, I think as a Democrat, you would be pretty excited about a Trump versus Biden election. Your point was very well taken. We made the 2020 election about normalcy and decency, and that's Joe Biden, versus a person who really seemed mentally unhinged and unsuitable to be president, at least in the view of a lot of people. He's got a base that love him, but he at least showed signs of mental instability. And now we're looking at the future, whether Joe Biden runs again. And it's sad to say that Democrats have made up their minds, according to our poll. The most decisive results that I've seen of any poll to date are the results that premise got. 60% of Democrats are saying to Joe Biden, do not run. And that's a very unusual fact in history that a party with an incumbent as president would have those kind of poll results. One of the common things that I hear people say about Trump is they'll say, well, we didn't elect a politician. We wanted to elect, you know, someone from the outside, a businessman. And I maintain that while that may be true, at the same time, the things that got him elected in 2016, people expected him to evolve at some point, right? To become more presidential, to understand the nuances and use language and words that would be more acceptable on the world stage. But he, he never seemed to get there. So my thought is, is this, we move into this 2024, one of the challenges that Trump would have is that people still have that mindset. Hey, you had a shot, you didn't grow up. And it's going to be tough for him to win. I think in spite of what we see in our polling, I'd love to have you back when it gets closer to 24 and to talk about what we're seeing, because I think everybody agrees he's going to run. I mean, that's not news. Who he's running against and who the front runners are and how that's shaking out will be fascinating to us political junkies. Well, you make a very important point, and I think it's a breaking news item that Donald Trump, despite all his difficulties, it isn't even close between him and Ron DeSantis and between him and his own vice president who's acted so honorably. He's not just ahead. 
According to our poll, he's ahead by 20 or 30 points among Republicans. Right, crushing them. Crushing them. So that's why I'm of good cheer. Let's keep it that way. We would have a more difficult time defeating anybody other than Donald Trump because of the electoral map problem that we face. And we've got to fix that. Talk to rural voters. Embrace Joe Manchin as being able to get elected from the state of West Virginia rather than alienate him. We've got to figure out a way to talk to center-left and center-right voters. But our poll, I'm saying our because I've worked with you on this premise poll, really breaks news at how almost impossible it's going to be for Republicans to defeat Donald Trump if he wants the nomination. And God bless, let that continue. (laughs) We hear that. Well, let's talk about the more current political environment. We've got midterms coming up here. The 2022 midterms are just a few months away. What did the poll tell you about that? It's interesting. And another, uh, I'm a political junkie, of course, you know that. And I was surprised by some of the results that I've announced today. But the one that really shocked me was that the general question about passion, interest in the 2022 midterms, which Political junkies like me, that's all we're focused on, is holding the House and winning the Senate. And thanks to Donald Trump, we have a chance of winning the Senate, where we don't have to be 50-50. That there's more passion and interest shown by Republicans in the results of the 2024 presidential contest, and slightly more in even the 2022. Democrats have lost some passion. And passion means turnout. Passion means winning. That's why the cultural issues that are so much in our favor for the first time are so important in increasing turnout to give us a chance of holding the Congress in 2022. So what can Democratic candidates do to galvanize their base? Well, the Roe versus Wade overturn should be galvanizing the base, but somehow Democrats have missed the message. And I wrote some time ago that if Democrats pose the question to every voter— Do you favor allowing a woman to have an abortion if she's been raped by a parent or raped? And right now the results are 80-20. Of course, Republicans are on the short end of an 80-20 poll. How are Democrats not taking advantage of being on the long end of an 80-20 poll is key to the failure of Democrats. And I do attribute this failure also to President Biden and not framing the issues that are cultural issues that simply. Do you or do you not support abortion for a woman who's been raped or the victim of incest? There is no way Republicans who are running for the House or the Senate should be allowed to escape that question. Well, you know, you're a lawyer. I'm sure you're a student of the Supreme Court. Were you surprised by the overturn of Roe v. Wade? I was surprised by the way the decision was written. Uh, Justice Roberts was ready to slightly modify the current law about when abortions were permitted, what number of weeks, by using the Mississippi law as a case of reasonable boundaries that were a lot less than the previous trimester formulation of Roe versus Wade. But if you ask the American people, this is another example where Democrats have the voters on their side, including Republican voters, and they're not framing the question properly. So guns is another example. 80-20 after these mass horrible tragedies in our schools and our children. 80-20, the American people certainly don't think 
that weapons of war should be available. 80-20, and we're not able to win people's votes. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We're back with Great Minds Think Data and my guest, Lanny Davis. You know, from my perspective, Lanny, one of the things that I've always felt about the Democrats is I feel like on policies they tend to overreach. How do you feel about that? I agree if you're talking about a party base that's an ideologically to the left of the mainstream base. They're very prone to demanding perfection as the enemy of the good, and that's what I call overreaching. The right has the same problem. When I think about overreach, and I see it had a dramatic impact, is when way back when, when the, the deal was made around the courts and said, okay, we can approve a justice with 50%. We can approve a justice if you have 51 senators or 50 senators or agree. You know, it was never that way. Back when Clarence Thomas was approved, confirmed, he had to have 60 votes, correct? Yes, and the Democrats are paying the penalty for carving out that exception. (laughs) Right, correct. Well, so they carved out that exception, and now, now look what's happened. So if you look in the rearview mirror, the overreach that they did was said, hey, we need, to, we need to get more Obama justices in, and so therefore we're going to change the law. And in today's world, what I see and what I'm really afraid of is these topics like court packing, doing away with the filibuster. To me, they seem like an overreach. And one of the things Joe Manchin says, by the way, is he says, I'm not in favor of that because when the power swaps, when it changes, and it will, we won't be in power forever, that could be used against us just as this was. So we asked a question in this latest premise poll about who's more responsible for polarization in the country, overreaching. Each base is accustomed to overreaching because they have a purity in their minds of their ideology, and compromise is a bad word. So we asked the question, who do you blame more for that mentality of polarization, left versus right? Not surprisingly, not shockingly, Democrats blame the Republicans for polarization. Republicans blame Democrats, and they're both right. And there needs to be a new center-left, center-right coalition that can save this country from what is, we're not even listening to each other anymore, from the red states to the blue states. It really is, according to our poll, on every question, a tale of two countries. That's the polarization you're describing. Don't you think a lot of this, though, 
it should be attributed to the media. I know you and I've talked about this in the past, how, you know, one of my favorite shows is that political junkie label I put on myself. I love Crossfire with Patrick Buchanan and Michael Kinsley. I can't remember when that was in the 90s. But you had two men ideologically opposed arguing the day's hot topics. We don't really have that today. Not for political correctness, but for accuracy. When I was doing Crossfire, there was a woman who was debating with Robert Novak, and I was in the middle. Her name, Lynn Cheney, Liz Cheney's mom. (laughs) So, yes, Crossfire was my favorite show because you were allowed to debate, and you could disagree agreeably. And I made most of my Republican friends in the hallways at CNN and subsequently MSNBC because you could disagree, but disagree agreeably. Because in large part of Donald Trump changing the way we debate and the following and the hatred towards Trump, both sides, there's no longer as much ability in the Congress and in politics, people like us who love politics, to see people disagreeing agreeably. It's more personal attack. I do blame Trump for this, but I'm a Democrat. I'm sure Republicans blame Democrats. Well, no, I I think it's true what you're saying, because what I think Trump did is he he kind of broke the barrier on what is decent. I just think Americans were sick and tired of him going on Twitter or going on the news and labeling people, insulting them, demeaning them. It's not presidential. That's not what people want. So I began my uh, really honored position with President Clinton in the late 90s, and I think I put a bookend on what I did for President Clinton when I helped Michael Cohen, who worked for Trump for 10 years, come forward and tell the truth about Trump and describing that Trump had no boundaries of personally attacking, no matter what, even if he didn't have facts. He invented his own facts and Michael Cohen's uh, ability to communicate his confession of being a facilitator of that wrongdoing was a key to my strategy of giving Michael a voice, which, as you know, the whole country and most of the world watched him testify. Yeah, I always, you know, one of the things that I do is I always try to get in people's heads and explain their behavior. And one of my, one of my mentors in the business world said, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a startup CEO. I've never ran a public company. Everything for me has been probably sub 1,000. And I'm proud of that. But one of the challenges is when you're running a small organization, you have to almost create, probably not the right word, but an enemy. You got to have the evil empire that you're going to go after. And so I, when I see Trump behaving that way, what I think he's doing subconsciously is he's trying to create a bad guy out of these people. He's branding them. He's labeling them. But he's doing it in a way that I feel turns off Americans. One of the things that we saw in the premise poll is that there is a lot of polarization, but independents are the ones who are really swinging it left and right. They're the ones who are saying, we don't want this. I think a lot of times if you're a a very loyal Democrat or very loyal Republican, you kind of hear what you want to hear. But the independents are a little bit more balanced, and they're the ones who are really making the decisions. Well, the most worrisome data of this premise poll that you all completed is the independents are breaking right now, according to this poll, towards the Republicans. And they're the swing voters. 
I always liken elections to a football field with two 40-yard lines to the goalposts. You can almost forget about changing their minds. But between the 40-yard lines are 20 yards. And that's where the independents mostly live. And we right now, as Democrats, have to figure out a way how to talk to rural, independent voters, conservative in some ways, liberal in some ways. But that's where we're losing ground. And the reason that 2022, we still have a chance of holding the Congress is thanks to Donald Trump, who has put up candidates who are so extreme in their views, it'll give us a chance to move to the center and hold the United States Senate. But we Democrats don't do ourselves favors by what you describe as the overreaching of anyone who disagrees with us are declared to be evil. Uh, And I'll quote President Clinton, who said to President Bush once when he came back to the White House, wouldn't it be nice if we went back to the days where we could say you're right or you're wrong versus what we're hearing today, you're good or you're evil. The difference is huge. Agreeing to disagree is the way politics in this country has made us great. I do believe Donald Trump rewrote the rules that you can't be agreeable, you have to be uncivil, you have to be personal in your attacks. And that, to me, has caused the polarization that I've described as a tale of two countries. Well, it's, you know, I think that democracy is powerful because it accepts people's ability to disagree. And when people get together and they discuss a topic, a lot of times they're going to come up with either the right answer or a better answer. And if only one person is making the decisions, things can go sideways. And normally, I think the founding fathers would agree with this, he will make decisions that are in his best interest. And that's what democracy really protects against. So when people say to me, oh, democracy's dead, I I don't see it that way. I think we're still able to have a healthy debate It's just sometimes it's not encouraged. I mean, we're certainly not... The debates that we see today on TV are not the Lincoln-Douglas debates, for sure. They get a little bit more personal and less intellectual. If you were the leader of the Republican Party, who would be the one person that you would like to shut up? This is a loaded question. (laughs) I hate to uh, mention his name or her name, but there are Republicans somewhere between economic conservatives like Ronald Reagan, social liberals who believe consistently get government out of our backs, out of our bedrooms, and don't tell us if you're women what to do with our bodies. They're consistent. There's a libertarianism in those Republicans that is consistent. Government, stay out of my life. But wait a minute. What about the Republicans that want a decision that says to a woman who's pregnant from rape or incest, you can't go to a doctor and get taken care of. So the Republicans that I don't want to name and give them a plug is a mixture of economic conservatism, which is basically where this country is, fiscal responsibility, Bill Clinton, classically a center-left politician, economic conservative, social liberal, and on cultural issues, a moderate, open to other cultures, other religions. The best I ever saw Bill Clinton as a politician was in a church preaching. Whether it's black church or white church or evangelical church, Bill Clinton raised in the countrysides of Arkansas was at his best as a preacher. And 
quoting scripture. That is a common bond that left and right ought to be looking at. Well, I think you gave such an elegant answer to my seemingly simple question. (laughs) I think if I were a puppet master in politics, I would retire Donald Trump. I think most Republicans would love to see him go away. Oh, please don't. (laughs) Well, I, I, I I know where you stand on this one. And then the second person that I bet Democrats wish would go away is AOC. No, I am not in agreement because she represents her constituents. And she does a great job if you took a poll of her congressional district. She has an 80% approval rating. That's what members of Congress are supposed to do is represent their constituents. What needs to happen, AOC and everybody else in Congress, before Trump, is be able to compromise and take your constituents and say, I couldn't get you 100%. I could only get you 60%. I think you're being super nice, Lanny. (laughs) I really do. I think you're being super nice because the way that I kind of see it as a pragmatist is that the left, left wing, the AOCs of the world, have really stymied political progress in this country under the Biden administration. You know, they've held up a lot of policy compromises that could have been made that could have moved us forward. And to a certain extent, the results that we're seeing with the 2022 congressional elections, it seems like that has really impacted people's thinking about who they would like to see in control of Congress. Well, without singling out AOC, who I have a bias to really liking, got to know her and she was helpful to Michael Cohen when we testified. There needs to be a new center definition where you can be a progressive, which I consider myself to be on the issues. I don't like labels. But you can still reach out to the other side and not feel like you have to apologize. And I do think our poll is going to open people's eyes in the Democratic Party. We do not have command of our own voter base when we have an incumbent president who they're not supporting. And I think of all times that we need at least some rallying around Joe Biden, some of these problems you can attribute to him, but most of them are outside of his control, like the cost of gasoline. I know there's long-term solutions to the cost of gasoline, but the supply chain, COVID, and Ukraine, and Russia's thuggery in Ukraine has a lot to do with it. But we have to find a way to come together and govern. And because of Donald Trump, it's cynical of me to say, I hope he runs. I really hope he doesn't for the best interest of the country. We have a chance to come together if he doesn't run. But for the best interests of progressives in the Democratic Party, we hope he runs. Well, you know, that the argument that Joe Biden doesn't have anything to do with the price of gas, price of the pump, which is really, in my opinion, influencing people's thinking about inflation. That's a topic that I'm sure Fox News would love to have you on to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. We need more moderation because right now, and, and our poll shows this, we're sitting on the extremes. You talked about early on, what shocked you about the premise poll, what really shocked me was the fact that so many Democrats, 63%, don't want Joe Biden to run. They want him to hang his head right off into the sunset. We saw from the polling, you know, it's basically Buttigieg, Harris, you know, some of the usual suspects are getting around 23% of the vote. I guess a future poll that we could run would be theoretical matchups between those candidates and DeSantis and Pence and Trump. Who do you think would be a good candidate? Well, first of all, I have to just say one comment about Joe Biden. 
And I know that there are independent voters, I consider you to be one, who said the same thing. What Joe Biden did in 2020 is to remind people that there's a place for decency in politics, goodness of heart, goodness of character, even if it's not effective in solving problems. And Joe Biden reminded us that as a country, we can be decent again. His inability to solve some of these problems, we can debate. But I would think... And we can debate the policies. And we can debate the policies. Uh, of course, I'm always going to be right. You're always going to be wrong. <laughs> of course. But the real challenge for the country is to find a way to do what you love watching on Crossfire. I used to love doing while I was a guest on Crossfire. Vigorously debating and using the words, I disagree, not the word, you are blank, uh, an attack word. You know, CNN is changing ownership hands. I'm sure you're aware of that. And yes. one of the things that I was, you know, there's been quite a big shakeup there. And one of the things that I was fascinated, not surprised to read, is that the new ownership has basically said, we want to become a unbiased news organization again. They didn't say it quite that way, but that was the implication. So maybe all the talk that we've had about Crossfire will inspire them to bring it back. And maybe you can be representing... One side or the other, I'm sure we know which one that would be. So we should take another premise poll soon about media and both sides, left and right, view media as antagonistic to their particular perspective. And I know that Democratic presidents complained about the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the liberal media. We didn't invent this silly expression, fake news, but I certainly constantly talked about inaccurate reporting but this is what the media is supposed to do. Read James Madison. Read Thomas Jefferson. When they wrote the First Amendment, they said we need the media to be wrong. We need the media as a place in the marketplace of ideas to be challenged when they report something. But they are, without question, better than the alternative which we see in Vladimir Putin's Russia. So I don't blame the media from a partisan standpoint. They do their job by bringing down or exposing through factual reporting who's ever president of the United States. And I know Bill Clinton was not a great fan of the media when he was president because he thought he was being attacked all the time. One of my favorite things about presidential politics, and one of the things that you know, I'm most proud of our country for, I think when we talk about January 6th, and obviously it was, it was a bad moment in our history, but one of the things that, that I love to read about and think about is that moment when we had that peaceful transition of power, the presidents walking down Pennsylvania Avenue together, and they go into the White House, and they sit in the Oval Office together for 15, 20, 30 minutes, and just chat as men. And, you know, hopefully someday as men and women or two women or however it all shakes itself out. But I was always struck by the conversation that Bill Clinton and George Bush had. And Bill Clinton, after he came out of there, said... Keep an eye on that guy. He's dangerous. He connects. Something to that effect. And when I'm sitting across from you and we're having such a great conversation, it reminds me that George Bush was one of your classmates. He was a year behind me, but he was in my fraternity, and I voted for George Bush as president of my fraternity. Oh, <laughs> what fraternity was that? Uh, Delta Kappa Epsilon. All but right. I also have said on television that I truly love George Bush as a friend. But I would never vote for him as president of the United States, only as president of my fraternity. <laughs> uh, and when I once uh, told a, a real story about 
my friendship with George Bush, and I wrote about this when he was first declared president in 2000 in a New York Times op-ed piece. He is the decent son of a decent father who was also president. And the return of decency in Joe Biden reminds me of George W. Bush and his dad. Uh, I didn't know as well as I knew President Bush, then George Bush, when I was in college. But my story for you is, in brief, it was during the days of great homophobia and bigotry against gay people. We didn't even use the word gay in those days. We used an ugly word. And we were sitting in the common area of the residential college that I'll call him George for now, and I were together at Yale in a residential college called Davenport. And a young man walks past us, my classmate, who was, uh, today's language would be obviously gay, but subject to miserable, taunting, and horrible, obscene words, a little bit behind his back. And as he walked by, somebody said that word, the F word, loud enough so that he heard it. And I shrunk and was horrified, but I'd said nothing. And George Bush looked around to the guy that said it and to all of us and said, knock it off, put yourself in his shoes and see how it feels. And I looked at George and I thought, whoa, we're all missing this guy who's the master of managing expectations down low and then he exceeds expectations. And my final comment is when I knew George back then, little did I know He'd be elected and re-elected governor of Texas, elected and re-elected president of the United States, and to this day is a close friend of Bill Clinton's, thanks to their getting to know each other and Bill Clinton working with George's dad, President Bush, on the tsunami. So now you have the epitome of America. They wouldn't vote for each other for president, but Bill Clinton and George Bush are close friends. That's a great story. So, you know, Lanny, one of the things I ask all of our guests is... What three insights would you leave the world that you've gained during this marvelous life you've had? So I'm sorry to disappoint you, but the three insights are the same word. To never forget the importance of the word. Then within that word, there are plenty of insights. The word is family. In my long life in politics, I wrote a book about rules to cope with politics, business, and life. The last word, life, is about what's important in life, in managing a crisis, in doing anything in your life. And I had the great honor of being a single dad with two teenagers who are now the parents of six grandchildren, and the other honor at an age that most people would say, you're too old, to have two new fantastic sons one a teenager, one 24. So I come back to, in my long life, I won't tell you how long, but it's been a long life, that my greatest honor and achievement has been the family, both generations. My 17-year-old now says to me, Dad, you're so 20th century. (laughs) (laughs) So that is really my answer as a a parting comment about all the things that I've done in my life, good and bad, lots of mistakes. I look at the most amazing achievement is the family. So your insight would be, to the audience, is to focus on family. Yes, always. So, you know, Lanny, I, I am so, so lucky to be a San Francisco Giants fan 
and a season ticket holder. One of my favorite stories about the Giants is that I always had this fantasy in my mind and what I would do with my son, and um, that was to take him to baseball games. You know, baseball games are, are special. It's not like a basketball game or a football game where you can't really you can't really share ideas and talk to the person you're with. And so I've got you know I've got my son here for captive nine innings, and you know I can try to help influence him and shape his life in some way. So when you walk up to the Giant Stadium, the first thing you see is a statue of Willie Mays. And I read something that you wrote about the last game the Giants played here in New York, and you went to that game. Tell us about it. And it's about family. So Willie Mays was my boyhood hero. And still to this day at the age of, ripe young age of 91. And so my dad took off from work on a Thursday afternoon to see the New York Giants before they went to San Francisco so you could be a season ticket holder. And we watched Willie Mays play and he came up to bat in the ninth inning and the clubhouse was way out in center field. So when the third out was made, I saw him leap out of the dugout to run as fast as he could because the entire crowd of about 20,000 people were chasing him. I was with my father. I was about 12 years old. And all I thought about was, don't leave, Willie. I jumped over the railing. And with the 20,000 mob tearing the stadium apart, we all ran to the clubhouse. And then I realized, as we were screaming, we want Willie Where's my father? And I was 11, 12 years old, and I panicked. But I wanted to yell, we want Willie. And I felt a hand on my shoulder, sitting at the base of the steps. I turned around, it was my father. And I said, Dad, how'd you find me? And he said, I knew where you'd be. That story I wrote in a column. And the only authorized biography of Willie Mays, the author, Robert Hirsch, read my column And as I'm reading that biography, there on two pages, said in that last game, there was a 12-year-old future counsel to the President of the United States named Lanny Davis. And he told my story with my father saying, I knew where you'd be. So that story is about family, baseball, mother, son, father, son, doesn't matter. It's a great memory, and I'm still a great fan of Willie Mays. It's a beautiful story. It's such a great sport. And for little kids, I mean, one of the things for me, it was such an amazing experience to go to the World Series. I never thought I would get to go. I was a Houston Astros fan my entire life. (laughs) Back then, we never went to the playoffs. But when we moved to San Francisco and I got the tickets, my son said, Dad, we're going to go to the World Series. And I tried to explain to him how unlikely that was. But you know, kids are so innocent and sweet and he said no dad we're going to the world series so miraculously of course we went and then we went two other times and each time he would tell me we're going to get there and i just shake my head and baseball the world series fathers and sons you know mothers and sons it's a great experience so one of the columns that i've written that had the best reaction of all was a purple moment in Nationals Park. This is a story, as I looked around the stadium rooting for the Washington Nationals, I saw Republican senators, Democratic senators. George Will was a few conservative columnists rose ahead of me. And there was one thing that all of us in that stadium had in common, rooting for the Washington Nationals. 
So I titled this column, A Purple Moment in a Nationalist Park. It was magic. And maybe we should, given our poll showing historic polarization, maybe we should all go to a ball game together. You're invited anytime. <laughs> <laughs>